Hey guys, just before the podcast gets started, I wanted to make a clarification on Ms. Gretchen's uh, title. It's actually now the Associate Vice President and Assistant to the President for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Anti-Racism. And she's also the Director of Diversity Recruiting and Advising at IES. Just wanted to clarify that because I did not add her new position to the intro. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ms. Gretchen Cook-Anderson. Welcome to the Dose of Caesar, the podcast where I speak to world travelers to uncover how their adventures around the globe have impacted their lives. My guest today is Ms. Gretchen Cook-Anderson. She is the award-winning Director of Diversity Recruiting and Advising at IES Abroad. She is a marketing and PR professional with 13 years of experience in international education marketing and 25 years in the marketing field. Gretchen's work garnered the Nationwide Excellence in Diversity and Inclusion in International Education Award in 2014 and 2016 from Diversity Abroad and an IES Abroad Achievement Award in 2018. She holds a bachelor's in political science from Spelman College and a master's degree in international economics and Japanese studies from Johns Hopkins University. That was a very quick intro because we have a quick podcast today. Ms. Gretchen Anderson, welcome to the show. Thank you, Cesar. <laughs> to join you. It's, a, it's exciting, you know, <laughs> among your, uh, your list of guests. I Certainly appreciate you inviting me uh, in for a conversation. No, I thank you for coming on, taking time out of your busy schedule. And, um, you know, I thought I wanted to start somewhere uh, that might be uncommon, but that really interested me when I was reading about you. I wanted mm-hmm. to ask about your grandmother's flower print scarf and why that's significant uh, in your life, if you're open to talking about it. Sure. Uh, okay, Caesar, you're going to start this off making me cry. because <laughs> <laughs> I just, when I read that, I was fascinated by it because of uh, yeah, every, everybody who, you know, people who know me in the global education field, they kind of know I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of a crier. Like I, <laughs> so uh, excuse me if that does get started no, while we're fine. talking, I'm going to try not to do them. Try not to just, like do the, the Oprah Winfrey ugly cry thing. I'm going to try that. <laughs> But um, so the, the significance of that um, little handkerchief, flowered uh, handkerchief is, I mean, it's a major possession for me in my life because it's one of the only um, items that I kind of inherited when my grandmother passed away. And I was only about five years old when she died, but I mm. distinctly remember her, um, you know, and I, I kind of have these really warm feelings when I think about who she was and how kind and lovely of a person she was. Um, but she she figures prominently, um, despite the fact that I was only five, you know, when she passed away, yeah. um, because she was a woman who, during her lifetime, you know, she grew up in rural backwoods, Georgia, uh, North Georgia. And, but she was, she was a young woman. When she was a young woman, she knew that there was a world beyond where she was. Somehow Mm. instinctively, she knew there was more in the world. And Mm. she knew also that because of her skin color, because she was a young black girl, she knew that, that her opportunities would be limited, um, Mm. strictly because of where she was and who she was. Um, and so she was very self-aware as a young woman. And, um, she was, she was the youngest of nine children and she was the only one among those nine who actually graduated from high school. 
Wow. And she was very proud of that. She she valued education. She knew somehow, again, instinctively, that education was a ticket out of poverty. Um, her father was a uh, was was known <laughs> as one of the, the best moonshine makers in North Georgia. A moonshine is <laughs> kind of like illicit alcohol, you know. He was, yeah. <laughs> but you know, as a he was a biracial black man at the time, where you know, again, his opportunities were very limited to make a living for his family. Um, and so he did what he knew how to do best um, in order to, you know, be able to uh, pay for the needs mm. of, of his nine children, his wife and nine children. And so um, so this was kind of the, you know, the the setting in which she was raised. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so she but she valued education, graduated from high school begged her father to support her in going to college. Uh, she really wanted to be the first person in her family to go to college. Um, she set her sights on Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia. Wow. Um, <laughs> black all women's college. She was very, she knew what she wanted, right? She was very, very specific about what she wanted. But unfortunately, because of the norms, many of the social norms of that time, and the, you know, kind of the, the role that women often played in society, mm -hmm. her father didn't believe that it was, uh, you know, a value proposition. He didn't wow. think that it was a good idea for her to go to college. He felt it wasn't necessary that her role in life was to find a good man and get married and have babies. That was it. And so wow. he did not support her, uh, her goals and dreams to go to college. And so she set about thinking that, you know, one day if I have a daughter, I want to make sure that she goes to college and I'm going to do whatever I can. And so my mom was her daughter. And um, so she made sure she she was lightning focused on making sure that her only daughter had an opportunity to not only go to college, but my mom graduated from Spelman College. Wow. <laughs> so, and, um, you know, my my grandfather and grandmother uh, worked really hard over uh, my mother during my mother's childhood to make sure that they could afford to send her to college. And so uh, when it was time to pay tuition every year, my grandfather showed up at Spelman College with cash, cash money wow. and plunked it down and paid for my mother's entire year, you know, each year paid in cash. And so she was not only able to go to college, but she decided because of the influence from my grandmother in knowing that there was a big world out there to see mm -hmm. and explore, my mom decided that she would major in French um, <laughs> and that she, with the idea that she'd study, she'd have a chance to study abroad in France and be able to use the language that she was learning while that was while her intention. Time. Yeah. And that, that, so this was in the late 1960s. Wow. Um, now, unfortunately, you know, because of us, my mom was not able to study abroad while she was mm. um, at Spelman, but she did graduate from Spelman with her degree in French. And then she, so this goes next generation <laughs> to me, right? So then she decided that not only if she had a daughter with that daughter, she's going to try to encourage that daughter to go to Spelman College, but she wanted that daughter to take our family that next leap and study abroad. That's and awesome. so, oh my God, yeah. And so that's what you know. So by the time I entered Spelman, and through the influence, you know, kind of this multi generational influence. Yeah, um, it's like every generation one step closer. That's to, awesome. Trying to push an extra step further at each wow. generation, uh, despite the limitations, despite the barriers of money, 
uh, and race. Right. Mm, yeah. And so my mom, you know, encouraged me and was very open to me exploring the world. And my parents worked very hard to make sure that if I wanted to go abroad, that I could go. And wow. so, um, you know, and they, and they were 100% behind me in my desire to want to study in Japan of wow. all places. Right. So this yeah. was in the 1980s and I was fascinated with Japanese culture, Japanese language, but in high school, my high school didn't offer Japanese language, you know, so I, I had no mm -hmm. opportunity to, you know, learn any, learn the language prior to going to college. And at the time, Spelman did not offer Japanese either. Uh, some other major, you know, state universities did and that kind of thing, but Spelman did not. So the only way that I could learn the language and really explore the culture was to study abroad. And so I decided that, you know, when the opportunity arose that allowed me to study abroad in Japan and I left in the fall of uh, 1988 um, to go, that since my grandmother had not had the opportunity to um, see the world the way that she had really hoped that I would take that piece of her with me. So I took that flowered handkerchief I tucked it into my, into my, you know, my luggage. And I decided that that was the way she was going to go with me wherever I went. So now I'm going to start crying. <laughs> wow. Well, that's such a beautiful story yeah. because now you've taken her all over the world with you. I have. That and, handkerchief has wow. literally traveled with me every single place that I have gone. So it has gone with me to 26 countries. Um, and oftentimes <laughs> I will take pictures of myself holding her handkerchief. You know, that's like yeah. me saying, here she is. You know, it's me and Nana. We're together. Wow. We're, you know. <laughs> I think that's that's honestly one of my favorite stories ever. The way, I mean, that's just an incredible story, the way everything tied in. And it, every, it gave I mean, me literally chills. Everywhere. I have tried, I've been to uh, India, all over, you know, to uh, West Africa, to all over, all over Europe <laughs> um, and all over, you know, Asia. Um, oftentimes in like some really, um, unusual transportation situations, <laughs> um, I've, I've been on auto rickshaws in India and, you know, but never the, you know, I, I backpacked through Europe. Um, when I, after I graduated from Spelman, I received a Thomas J. Watson fellowship, which is a very highly competitive fellowship for young people, mm. um, coming out of college. And it allows you to travel abroad for an entire year um, when someone else is dying, right? And um, it's a fully paid um, opportunity. And so I received uh, one of those uh, fellowships mm -hmm. and again, took that handkerchief with me. And uh, so my grandmother traveled with me again when I literally backpacking solo through Europe. And awesome. uh, including the trip to India, you know, it was just me, myself and I and that handkerchief, <laughs> you, know, um, you know, and I was like I said, through all kinds of interesting circumstances, uh, that handkerchief went with me when I climbed the Swiss Alps, um, wow. you know, everywhere. It has literally gone everywhere. And I, I feel like in some kind of symbolic way, maybe it mm -hmm. has blessed my travels or at least I like to think that that's the case that I'm never actually alone when I travel. Yeah. That was going to be one of my follow-up questions. Did you ever feel homesick, but you had that handkerchief. So I would imagine yes. you always felt kind of at home with it. Yeah. 
Oh, absolutely felt homesick on many occasions. Oh, you did. uh, I remember when I was towards the end of my second, my first semester of study abroad in Japan, because I stayed the entire academic year, uh, which was pretty much the norm in the 80s and early 90s. Most students who studied abroad stayed the entire academic year, not a semester. And so I stayed the entire academic year, but it was it was a struggle that first semester in Japan because of the language barrier mm. that I had. I was stay I was living with a homestay family the entire year, and they did not speak any English. Um, and so through the you know kind of all these trials and tribulations that I was experiencing, there were moments when I thought I just I should go home. I'm ex- I'm mentally emotionally <laughs> exhausted. I'm uh, I'm I'm enjoying a lot of my experience, but I really miss my family. I miss my friends. Um, but at, at, you know, whenever I would got to really feeling that way, mm-hmm. I would hold on to that handkerchief and, you know, essentially ask for strength. I needed her strength to carry me through. So that, yeah. And that would keep you there. That, that's oh, yeah. what, yeah. It would, wow. That's, that's amazing. Um, I know we only have um, 10 more minutes, but I did want to ask because you you went to Spelman college and that's how you got to Japan. And I was reading about the story of how you went um, abroad, there was a language requirement for the, the program, right? That yes. you didn't meet, but could no, you tell the story of how you managed to still go abroad, even though they had rejected you at the beginning, right? Or, well, so <clears throat> I would, there was outreach to me to, you know, to let me know, well, you know, you don't meet the requirements, um, for the language requirements for this program. So the, the program that IES Abroad has, even to this day, uh, but at that, at that time, it required four semesters of college-level Japanese. I had had zero semesters <laughs> of college-level Japanese. Um, so how do you end up going? How did that but it, was, go? it was one of the very few programs that, uh, you know, for American college students that, you know, that I could have chosen to, to go to Japan. So Um, I called up the gentleman who was then the, he was the vice president for academic affairs at IES. uh, I think at the time that, I think that was something like his title. Mm -hmm. Um, His name was Dr. Michael Steinberg, who eventually became a colleague of mine when I joined the organization 10 years ago. And uh, so it's funny how things come full circle, but at any rate, (laughs) I, I called him, literally called him on the phone. This is before smartphones and email, none of that existed. Right. So I literally called this man on the phone in his office and I had to talk myself into the program. I, you know, so what I essentially did, I, I acknowledged that, you know, I understand that I do not have, I don't meet the prerequisite for this program, but what I can do is I can promise you that if you allow me to enroll I will do everything humanly possible to catch up with the other students, um, no matter what I have to do. If I have to get a tutor, if I, whatever I have to do, um, I promise you that you will not regret letting me into this program. I will do whatever I have to. So he, I guess somehow I convinced him to give me a try. And uh, he said, yes. Right on the phone, right there on that call. He said, all right. Yeah, He said, yes. Okay. We're going to, we're going to try this, but I was probably like on academic probation or something going into the program. And, um, but, and so what I did was in order to meet the promise, you know, I kind of, you know, I'd already promised that I, and, you know, just because of the court, the, the Japanese classes that were held, I had no choice 
but to do everything I could to catch up with the other students because mm. they were all, you know, far ahead of me um, when we got started. And so um, I studied, you know, and even in the off hours outside a classroom, I was constantly studying, you know, till two o'clock in the morning and then I get up early at five and then I study some more and then I go do my classes and I was constantly trying to use everything I was learning with my host family so that I could, you know, practice the, the language as much as possible. So I was in a, I was just like in a constant cycle of just intensive learning that I had put myself on. Yeah. <laughs> I put myself on an academic plan, right? So because I, I had to, I had to catch up with the other students. And so um, that, and that's what I did. So I kind of created this intense cycle of learning for myself mm-hmm. that even when I got to the point where I had caught up with them, I continued on that intense cycle of learning because I had just kind of gotten used to it for myself. And it, by the end of that academic year, I had actually passed a lot of the the, the proficiency of a lot of my uh, fellow classmates. Um, and they were all like amazed, like, <laughs> how did you? You came what? in with almost no like Japanese language experience and you passed them by the end of the, was it a full a one semester or a whole year? This is the whole year. So the entire academic year. So by June, when classes were ending, I had actually passed the proficiency of a lot of my classmates because I had stayed on this cycle. I kept on that cycle of intensive learning for myself. And, Mm -hmm. you know, part of the strategy was I spent a lot of time with my host family because I knew that talking to them was what was going to help increase my proficiency. I needed to be around them as much as possible. Whereas other students were hanging out with each other on the weekends and they speaking were speaking like going, their, like their like language. Not, okay. Right. Gotcha. I forced myself to speak Japanese all year um, so that I could, you know, because I was always in this constant, like insecurity of I'm like behind the other students. And so, like I said, even once I got, I got to the point where I was proficient, uh, I just kind of kept going. I was like, no, I'm going to keep focused Stay focused, stay targeted, you know. Yeah. So that was that was kind of what I did. Yeah. Two questions um from that. Um, how did you what did you learn about learning? Is it because that's incredible that you passed everyone else, you know? What did you learn about the learning process? Mm. And um, and then the other question was gonna be what was driving you? Huh. What was driving me? Uh yeah. What was driving me? My my grandmother's dreams. Mm, okay. That's a, it's a good drive. Yeah. I, I wanted to make her proud. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's amazing. That, uh, that, that is definitely, I can see how much, how that gave you so much fuel. Cause it's yeah. just you. It, oh, and when, and when things got hard, which they did, <laughs> when things got hard, all I had to do really was think about all the women who'd come before me mm. in my family and the, I knew that their fates, that their lives were much harder than mine, much harder than mine. The challenge that I was in the midst of was a challenge that I had chosen, not something I was forced into. I had chosen it. And so if I chose it, then I had to do whatever I needed to do to make sure that I had the best, richest experience possible um, because I was enjoying f- a freedom and an opportunity that the women before me and my family did not have. So I had no, I felt I had no choice, but to do the best I could. 
right? You know, I'm thinking I'm thinking of all these women that came before me who were just as strong, just as intelligent, just as capable, but they didn't have the opportunities. They didn't they were their their lives were limited by what was going on at the times when they lived. And I refused to fail. Mm, I love that. Um, I know we have to go now, but um, last one of the last things I wanted to mention was a quote that I read that I really liked in an interview you had, they asked you, do you have any parting thoughts? And you said to the audience, go see, do learn, then inspire others to do so as well. I wanted to ask about that last part. Why is that so important to once you go see, do and learn to then inspire others to do so as well? You know, I, because I like to think that, you know, part of why we're all here is we all have a purpose we all have the ability to influence those who come behind us. We all do, right? No matter what we're doing, whether it's global exploration, whether it's, you know, medical innovations and scientific innovations, you know, matter, no matter what it is, right? We have the ability to use our experiences, our talents um, to influence someone else, to make their lives better, right? To lay a pathway for someone else to come behind us. And that's, you know, I live and breathe, try to live and breathe that. Um, you know, I'm always trying to think about how can I set an example for someone else? Um, because I know all the beautiful examples that were laid before me for me to follow, right? In other people's footsteps. Um, and there were other people who had to break barriers in order for me to live the life I have. And I want to help lay a pathway to make it a little easier for someone else. Um, and I think we all have the ability to inspire someone else. Right. So that is really part of my whole ethos is, you know, when you do, or you're able to do something, then you have a responsibility to make sure that someone else has the, has the chance to come behind you and do the same and not only do the same, but even go beyond where you did. And so, yeah, it's like, Mm. go seek, you know, learn, and then inspire someone else, then do something that someone else can come behind you. Wow. Well, I mean, isn't that how we make progress as humans, right? As, I think so. Human progress continues from generation to generation. But, but I think that it's, it's important to be self-aware about the responsibility that you have and then to act on that responsibility. I think so. And I think that's part of also fulfillment, giving back. It's not just about Absolutely. you. It's about, it's a whole community thing. That's right. Um, Ms. Anderson, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me for a few minutes. I really appreciate it. And uh, it's so inspiring. And I can see why you and Dr. Moore get along so well. <laughs> you are. I know he and I, we vibe. We like vibe big time. Oh, for sure. I mean, you basically, you kind of said what, what he believes as well. It's I'm going to help kids be better than That's the right. last generation. That's right. And now, you know, I have the, just before we go, I now, um, because of the promotion that I, um, you know, I'm very excited about that I received in uh, April at IES Abroad. So now I oversee all of our, um, uh, I'm, I'm now kind of the global head of diversity, equity, and inclusion at the organization. So that now I'm not only looking at um, issues of, of equity and diversity and inclusion, mm-hmm. you know, kind of in the U.S. centric through that US centric lens, but I'm, I'm really looking across the scope of global diversity. What does it mean across cultures? What does diversity, inclusion and equity look like in all, mm. across all the cultures where we educate students? Um, 
And so again, you know, I feel like this is a, a really meaty, wonderful opportunity to hopefully impact others' lives um, in ways that other people have influenced my own. So I have taken this on with, you know, gusto and enthusiasm. Yes. And, uh, but I'm really excited. And thank you for being one of our students, you know, a student who participated in one of our programs. And you are now doing exactly what I talked about. Mm. You're taking your own experience and you're utilizing that to inspire others through your podcast. Yeah, so you're doing that same thing too. Yeah, to me, it was uh, such a, yeah, it changed my life. And I just, mm-hmm. I just want more kids to take that leap. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so thank you for what you're doing. Oh, thank, thank you. Know, you. It was, it was partly we're through hand your in hand. We're, we're, we're partners <laughs> in this stuff, right? We're doing it together. Yes. You're doing it in a way that utilizes your talents and, and passions. And I'm doing it in a way that utilizes mine, but we're, but to the same end, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Definitely. Um, well, I want to be respectful mm-hmm. of your time unless yeah, you want to keep going. I'll keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Or we can reschedule to finish out our our, ha- our other half an hour. So yeah, but, that'd be um, great. That'd be great. Let me know what whatever you want to do. I'm happy to be helpful. Sounds good. Well, you have a great day, and to everyone listening. Oh, last thing: if, if people want to reach out to IES Abroad, it's Instagram at IES Abroad, and everywhere else at IES Abroad. So. That's right. And please feel free to reach out to me. I'm here for for all of you. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, you have a great day, Sanderson, and to everyone listening. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you, Cesar. Hey there. If you enjoyed this episode, well, green light. New episodes of The Dose of Caesar come out every week, so make sure to follow and subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. If you feel that more people should listen to this podcast and share this episode with your tribe. If you want to connect with me or if you just want some extra doses of Cesar, of Caesar, of Cesarin Bingui, then you can sign up for my free weekly email newsletter called The Caesar Encyclopedia, where I share what I learn every week. Or you can reach out to me on Instagram at the dose of Caesar. We'll see you next time.